I have with me a guest this morning that I have wanted to get on this show for so very long. I um I read his first book in the 90s as a uh, as a fairly new police sergeant and um I have been following his work ever since and for those of you who follow the National Police Association, you know how strongly we believe in a in the citizens right to be able to own and carry firearms. So John Lott, welcome to the program. Well, thanks very much for having me on, Betsy. I appreciate it. So when I first read your book in the 90s, actually, my husband gave it to me. And uh, and you were actually uh, not a gun guy, per se. You were an economist. Is that correct? Can you talk to people about how you came to be this crime prevention and Second Amendment advocate? Right. Well, I'm not really a Second Amendment advocate per se. I go look at the data. My concern is what makes people safer or not. And uh, economists, uh, I'm still an economist, but the economists uh, have a simple idea and that if something's more costly, if it's riskier, people do less of it. If there's greater incentive, they do more of it. That's one part of kind of what makes somebody an economist. And uh you know, if the price of apples go up, people buy fewer apples. If it's riskier for criminals to go and commit crime, they commit fewer crimes. Uh, I had been chief economist at the U.S. Sentencing Commission in Washington, which sets the uh, penalties for all federal crimes. Uh, so there's lots of issues there about, uh, you know, trying to measure the cost of different crimes and trying to determine what the right level of penalties would be to deter things. Uh, and I had written a lot of academic papers on crime issues, but I'd never really been interested in guns per se. My views were probably similar to most people's in terms of being kind of in the middle of the debate. I was affected as much as anybody else, I'm sure, by the media coverage uh, on the issue. And uh, anyway, I was at Wharton for four years and I was teaching a class on white collar and corporate crime. And I made the mistake of telling the students that we were ahead in the syllabus. And I had uh, a couple of students come up to me after class and say they knew it wasn't really on topic, but it was generally crime. And if we had extra time, could I go and I talk about gun control? And I said, well, you know, I guess I could. I had read some of the academic papers in the area and they were really poorly done, but I had kind of always assumed that there were better papers out there. And uh, in order to teach the class, it kind of forced me to kind of go through the literature more. And I have to say, I was pretty shocked by how poorly done the work was. And if you're an academic, you do papers for one of two reasons. Either one, you have a completely new idea that nobody's had, which has been like 95% of the papers that I've done. Or you think you simply can do a better job than others have done, which kind of was this. In fact, when I was working on this, uh, I almost stopped about six times just because it wasn't interesting to me. And uh, uh, anyway, I finally finished it uh, when I was at the University of Chicago. And uh, uh, I had a graduate student who was helping me with the data there. And I got a call from a reporter at USA Today named Dennis Kushan, uh, who I'd gotten to know a little bit when I was at the Sentencing Commission. And he would call me up like every nine months or whatever, asking me some question about something. So he called me up, asked me his questions. And then at the end of the interview, he said, oh, by the way, what are you working on? And I said, well, I just had finished this paper. Uh, it had focused on 
right to carry, though I looked at 13 different types of gun control laws generally. And uh, he said, oh, that sounds interesting. Why don't you send him a copy? So I sent him a copy. And then a week later, it was on the front page of USA Today. And, uh, you know, things kind of went from there. I just uh, I have to say, normally my academic work, I do a few papers in an area and then move on to something else. But uh, I had never really been involved in a debate where there seemed like so much misinformation uh, that was out there. And uh, and it kind of I guess I kind of convinced myself that if I didn't uh, speak out on the misinformation, nobody would. And I know my views have changed pretty radically over time. Uh, you know, issues like gun free zones and stuff. I never would have thought, you know, 25, 30 years ago that I would be making the types of arguments now that uh, then that I make now. Well, when you did this research and you, and ultimately turned it into a book, right? Uh, More Guns, Less Crime. Right, exactly. We were on uh, kind of the tail end of a, of a real crime surge in the United States. You know, the 90s, if you were a police officer in the 90s, like I was, um, you saw the horrific uh, violent crimes that we had around... Uh, the nation, especially in urban areas, you know, New York, Chicago, LA, things like that. Um, and we were able to get a handle on that crime. And one of the things that you found with your research, again, is very simply the title of the book, right? Where there were more legal guns, there was less crime. And you really, you got attacked um, for that. Your research got attacked. You can go online still and, and read where people say, oh, just all his research was wrong and what he did was wrong. Talk about the response that you dealt with when you came out with all this. Well, um, you know, you're from Chicago. One of the things that happened uh, was in, in November of 1998, my book came out in May of 1998. In November of 1998, uh, Mayor Daley, uh, the younger, called up uh, Hugo Sunnenstein, who was the president of the University of Chicago, and uh, apparently went through like 45 minutes of all the wonderful things that the city wanted to go and do with the university. Uh, but then at the end of the conversation said, uh, my John Lott's continued presence at the university was going to do, quote, irreparable harm, end quote, to the relationship between the city and the school basically threatening that all those wonderful things that the city wanted to do with the school uh, would be in jeopardy if I continued to be at the university. And so uh, a couple days after that, uh, I was called into a meeting with the dean. Uh, the dean said, you know, John, you're probably been about the worst treated person in academia, but we're going to have to have you leave the university right now. And I said, you know, you make me leave in the middle of the school year, that's going to destroy my academic career. You can't do that. And so anyway, I won't go through the blow by blow, but the final agreement was that if I promised not to talk to the media anymore, uh, they would let me stay there at the university through that school year uh, until June. And uh, if you look back at that time, I was with my book, I was doing constant media from May until uh, November. And then all of a sudden I go radio silent at that point. And that's because of the agreement that I had made with the university. Uh, and then uh, I went to Yale. I was at the Yale Law School. Uh, and uh, 
I was uh, invited to go and testify in Hawaii on changes in their registration and gun and licensing laws that they had there. And uh, uh, my testimony got the two US senators from Hawaii upset. Uh, basically I was blamed for killing the bill that was there. Uh, I told, basically it was an easy bill to kill in the sense that uh, I, I was told that the Honolulu police chief was going to be testifying for the bill. And I told the legislators who were inviting me out, look, there are two questions to ask. You have to ask him beforehand because you want him to be able to answer this. You're not trying to sandbag him. Uh, and the two questions were, one, they've had licensing and registration in Hawaii since 1960. How many crimes have they been able to solve as a result of licensing and registration? Uh, and I knew the answer was going to be zero. And then the second, and which is what he said. And then the second question was, okay, well, how much does it cost each year to go and run the licensing and registration program? And he testified uh, that it, he couldn't give an exact dollar number, but it took about 50,000 hours worth of police time each year to go and run the program. And you could just hear the air go out of the room when he answered those two questions, because you know, if he could point to thousands of crimes that have been able to solve, then maybe there's a trade-off there. You know, 50,000 hours worth of police time. That's a lot of crimes that you could solve and protect people for if you had policing do normal policing work. But to go and take 50,000 hours of police hours off the street and have them do something where they couldn't even point to one single crime over many decades that they've been able to go and, and solve that they wouldn't have solved otherwise. Um, you know, it it really came was obvious to people. It was a huge, massive waste of money, even the existing program. Uh, and so uh, the bill died. And the two US senators, for some reason, from Hawaii got wind of this and were upset and called up the Dean at the Yale Law School. And I was basically told that I wasn't gonna be allowed to stay uh, after that point in time. So anyway, there are other things I could go through, but it's just, uh, it's been an interesting experience. So let's get to the data because it, you know here we are, fast forward to 2023, um, we uh, are in another violent crime spike and politician after politician um, talks about more gun control, more gun laws. And that is what is going to fix the gun violence uh, problem we have in the United States. What say you? Well, I mean, first of all, it's just important to point out that over 92% of violent crime has nothing to do with guns. Uh, you know, we did a survey last year. The average Democrat thinks that 58% of violent crime involves guns. The average Republican thinks 38% of violent crime involves guns. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is that uh, the people who are most inaccurate about the percent are basically people who went to graduate school and make like over $200,000 a year. The people who are most accurate in terms of knowing the percent of violent crime that involves guns are people who have a high school education or less than high school or people who are relatively poor that make less than 30 or $50,000 a year. Uh, you know, most likely the people who are likely to experience violent crime know that a lot of violent crime doesn't involve guns. 
the people who just kind of get their information about violent crime from watching the television uh, or from graduate school are the ones who are most inaccurate in, in, in understanding that. Um, you know, uh, it's pretty easy to understand why violent crime has increased the last couple of years. You've had big cuts in police budgets in Chicago. Uh, in 2020 alone, they cut the number of police officers by 400 slots in the city. Uh, they moved dozens of other police officers from off the street to go and protecting Mayor Lightfoot and other politicians in the state, in the city. And, uh, you know, uh, you've had district attorneys like Kim Fox uh, uh, in Cook County who refusing to prosecute violent criminals. Uh, one of my one of the more bizarre cases over a year ago, uh, there were two rival drug gangs fighting against each other at 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, it was caught on high definition video. Uh, you had police officers who were actually there witnessing the, the gang fight. Uh, one person was killed, two were seriously injured and sent to the hospital. Uh, but Kim Fox's office initial reaction was not to bring charges against anybody because it was, quote, mutually agreed to combat that had occurred. And uh, uh, they later still refused to go and bring uh, charges uh, because they said that there simply wasn't enough evidence. But even uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, who's as left wing as just about anybody but a former prosecutor, said, you know, how much more evidence can you possibly have? You have these guys on high definition video, you have police officers were actually present there and watching this when this happened. Uh, but, you know, it's just one example. And then you have liberal judges around the country who have in many urban areas released half or even two thirds of the inmates from jails. You know, it's one thing to during COVID to go and release people who are over 65 or over 60 or whatever. But the vast majority of people who are in jail are late teens, uh, 20s, 30s healthy young males. Um, and it just doesn't make any sense. Even they were being released even late after it was clear that it was basically older people who are the ones who were at risk. And then you have things like uh, bail reform, which lets people out with either no or very low bail. Um, I'm not sure people understand how these things work. So for example, let me give you an example. You have uh, the man in uh, Kenosha, Wisconsin, who drove his SUV through the Christmas crowd over a year ago, killing six, sending 62 people to the hospital. Um, you know, in that case, uh, he had already been arrested uh, for attempted murder of the mother of his child with the same car. Uh, he faced three other felonies. He was facing basically 30 years in prison for these other crimes. Um, He's 38 years old. So he's already facing what's effectively a life sentence. He goes and kills six more people. What additional penalty are you going to be able to impose on him? He's already facing a life sentence. So the first life sentence isn't keeping him from doing it, but the second life sentence or the third or the fourth or the seventh life sentence, that's going to stop him from committing more crimes. He essentially gets free crimes for going there because there's no really additional penalty that you're able to go and impose on him. So guess what? He goes and commits more uh, crimes that are there. And you see that happening across the country in many different places. And so, you know, it's not rocket science. If you make it so it's not risky for criminals to go and commit crime, 
you're going to see more crime that's going to be occurring. And the sad thing to me is that while President Biden has been constantly talking about more gun control and other politicians, as you mentioned, have been doing that, none of these guys criticize these district attorneys who are refusing to go and bring charges against these individuals. None of these guys are criticizing the liberal judges uh, who have released half or even two thirds of the inmates in many of the jails uh, and counties across the country. Uh, none of these guys are criticizing the bail reform that's there. And, uh, you know, it, it's just uh, Biden kind of late to the party started talking about uh, uh, hiring more police with federal funds. But, you know, the thing is, the police are demoralized because they see that they arrest individuals, but they're immediately released and no punishment occurs to them. And so that discourages them from doing that. And besides, um, a lot of the money is fungible that Biden was putting forward. It's not really clear it would increase the number of police, but simply make it so the federal government would pay for the police that they would be hiring anyway. And and there are other problems with it. So, um, you know, it's just, it's the thing is, uh, they don't want to take responsibility for themselves. So I think they often use gun control as saying, well, uh, it's not our fault that the violent crime is increasing. It's because we don't have the strict gun control laws that we need. But the bizarre thing is the gun control laws that they push usually have nothing to do with the crimes that they're using to go and push the gun control laws for. Uh, so, you know, we hear constantly about background checks on private transfers of guns. There's not one mass public shooting this century that would have been stopped if such a law had been in effect and been perfectly enforced. You know, you have states like California that already have these laws and have a rate of mass public shootings that's significantly higher than the rate for the rest of the country. But yet, you know, somehow we're supposed to be using them as a model that the rest of the country is supposed to have. You have this Michigan State University attack that was just occurring. Biden immediately calls for an assault weapons ban and talks about banning large capacity magazines. Well, it was a hand, hand two handguns that were used. There were standard size magazines that were used uh, in there. Uh, makes no sense. You have Bloomberg's gun control groups that call for background checks on rifles. Uh, well, as far as I know, you buy a rifle any place in the country from a licensed dealer, you have a background check. What they really meant was private transfers, but the rifle wasn't even used in the attack. It wouldn't have mattered in that case. Uh, they talk about things like red flag laws that wouldn't have made any difference in that case either. Um, so, I mean, you go through the things. They have a list of laws that they want to go and push. But, uh, you know, any attack uh, that has nothing to do with it, they just simply use as another reason for doing it. My concern is that a lot of these laws, if they're primarily obeyed by law-abiding good citizens relative to criminals, you actually make it easier for criminals to go and commit crimes. I'll give you a, a simple example, and this is relevant for Chicago or other places. Every place in the world that's banned either all guns or all handguns has seen increases in murder rates. Uh, and you know, you'd think if guns on net are bad, then they should be every place it should go down. But and you'd think out of randomness anyway, you'd find at least one place where it went up or, or at least stayed or went down or at least stayed the same. 
And yet every single time it's gone up and there's a simple reason for that. And this applies, as I say, to gun control laws generally. And that is if it's primarily the most law-abiding good citizens who obey the rules and you disarm relative to the criminals, you actually make it easier for the criminals to go and commit crimes. We hear so much about um, police officers don't want uh, citizens to have guns. They want to be the only ones with guns. In reality, that's from certain police leaders, usually police chiefs, usually in um, Democrat-run areas. What's the reality of, um, and you know better, even better than I do, boots on the ground cops uh, who really do want armed and trained citizens? Look, anybody who's read my academic research knows that I think police are the single most important factor for reducing crime. I don't think there's any doubt about that in my mind. But police themselves understand that they virtually always arrive on the crime scene after the crimes occurred. Uh, they're important for arresting and making sure that these guys are punished, but they can't be there all the time. I mean, you have over 600,000 police in the United States but you don't have more than 250,000 or so on duty at any one moment in time. You're absolutely right. John, where can people find you, find your research, find the books? Okay, well, uh, everything that we've talked about and more is on our website at crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org. Uh, and, you know, they can find links to our studies and to uh, uh, the books and everything else that they might want to look at. Awesome. I cannot thank you enough for spending time with us today and clarifying some of these issues for us. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Put the gun down! Last year, Law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.